So if you're joining us for the first time today, we have been looking at the image of God and how humans, mankind, is made in the image of God. We talked about how mankind is made in the image of God, but then that image was marred because mankind embraced open rebellion against God and how that impacted all of creation. And what we've been looking at over the last few weeks are these certain things that we see in the first two chapters of Genesis that are like markers that have some kind of correlation with the image of God. So it says male and female, he created them. He says be fruitful and multiply. He says have dominion. He says work the garden. He says it's not good for man to be alone. These are all things that we have been talking about over the last few weeks, looking at God's initial design, how it was corrupted by the rebellion, the fall, and then how God is restoring it in in through Jesus, essentially. And so today we're going to talk about that idea of how have dominion, or as it says in Genesis chapter 1, it says, God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. That's what we talked about last week. And he says, and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over every living thing that moves on earth. Um, So the biblical picture here, which we're going to get into in a moment, is the idea that God is king over everything, and then he creates humans as little kings to reign under his overarching reign. And to really appreciate the gravity of this, you have to understand in some small way the comparison or the juxtaposition of other ancient Near Eastern cultures and the way that they viewed these concepts compared to the Hebrew Bible. So um, I want to tell you a little bit about the Babylonian creation epic, which is called Enuma Elish, right? Enuma Elish, it was found in 1849 in the ruins of the Nineveh Library, and it gives an account of the Babylonian understanding of creation. And so this is how the Babylonian creation myth went. There were two gods at that time who were fighting with each other. One was named Tiamat, and one was named Marduk. Okay, Tiamat is kind of like the god of chaos, the goddess of chaos, the goddess of the sea. She's pictured as this like water dragon type thing. And Marduk is this warrior. And so they're fighting, they're going at it toe to toe. And Marduk comes up with a plan. And this is his plan. He's going to blow wind into her cheeks, right? Like if I just came up to you and I started doing one of those things, he blows wind into her cheeks And then as she has all that wind in her cheeks, he pulls out a bow and arrow and he shoots her in the throat. That's how you do, right? I mean, which one of us in a moment of rage hasn't done the same thing, okay? And so that's what Marduk does. He he shoots her in the throat with an arrow and then he embraces power stance and he rips her in half, okay? He takes half of her and he makes the sky. He takes the other half of her and she becomes the waters below, and the gods are content. Marduk was victorious. Tiamat is split in tween, okay? And so they're just celebrating the rest of the gods, but eventually they get frustrated because every day they have to create food, and then they got to go eat, and then they got to create more food, and they're getting tired of this constant creation of food, so they come up with another idea, which is the god we like the least. Let's kill him too. And then they they kill that God and they mix his blood with dirt and they form that dirty blood, bloody dirt together and they make humans. 
And then they make the humans their slaves, and they say, we can have these slaves, these, these bloody, dirty slaves. They can make and grow our food for us. Now, we won't have to make food every day, and we can just sit around. And it was so. That's the new Belish. That's the creation account. I know you guys seem enthralled. I can tell. This is the creation account according to the Babylonian epic. Now, I want to, I share that because I want to compare that to Genesis. I want to compare that to Genesis chapter 1. And the picture we have in Genesis chapter 1 is that God is king over everything, period. That his spirit is hovering over the chaotic waters in the midst of the formless and void. He reigns. There's no competition. It's not God versus the formless and void. It's not God versus the chaos. It's just God reigning and ruling without any competition. And then he takes the formless and he forms it. He takes the chaos and out of the chaos, he forms it into something beautiful and lovely. But unlike Marduk, he doesn't have to shoot it in the face and rip it in half. Instead, what does he do? He speaks. He simply speaks. That's all he does. He speaks. He creates with the word of his mouth from nothing. He speaks like a king who's making an edict. Let there be light. And there's light. No little minions running around doing his bidding. His spirit is hovering. His word is proclaimed. And right there from the beginning you see a very stark difference between the God of the Hebrews and the God of the Babylonians or the Egyptians or any other ancient Near Eastern culture. You see, if you were growing up in the ancient Near East, your mind would immediately be accustomed to what a striking difference the Genesis account was compared to your own creation account. Maybe if you were a Babylonian, you would think that the creation account in the Hebrews was pathetic and wimpy. It didn't even have any arrows or ripping in, in carcasses in half, but it would be different for sure. There's something else that the ancient Near Eastern mind would be accustomed to. It would be accustomed to this idea that kings are made in the image of God with divine properties. So, for example, when the Egyptian Pharaoh in the Exodus account, when he's so resistant to Moses and Moses says, let my people go, let my people go, you have to remember that for the Egyptian Pharaoh, yes, there was many gods in Egypt, but he viewed himself as a god. And so this was a direct attack, not just on their gods, it was a direct attack on him as God in Egypt, and for his people, he would look at them and he would, they would say, someone is attacking our God. For the Babylonians, they would believe that their king was a descendant of Marduk, the one who had conquered Tiamat and set up this reign on this new creation. In the ancient Near Eastern mind, they knew that kings would make commands and then all the little peons had to run around and obey, kind of like being born into a lower caste system. But then we look at the Genesis account. We look at how different the Genesis account is from that ancient Near Eastern culture. We see that God is king and God creates with an edict, with the word of his mouth, that he creates humanity, he creates mankind, not so that he can have slaves who will run around and do his bidding, but it says that he created mankind in his image, the same way that the Egyptian Pharaoh would be in the image of the Egyptian God. But in this case, it isn't just the Egyptian pharaoh. It's everybody. 
that God created humanity, men, women, rich, poor, children, and the elderly, they are in his image with that divine stuff. And as his image bears, each of them holds this kingly responsibility to rule, to reign, and to care for the world. And that's why Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the rest of creation. The idea is that God is saying humanity has a divine, kingly attribute within them, and they are given the responsibility to rule, to reign, to subdue, to create all of them. Now, we're going to talk about this a little bit more next week, but when you start asking, well, how are they supposed to reign? The picture that we get in the next chapter in Genesis chapter 2 is gardening that the Lord says, I need you to have dominion. And then God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The idea is that using the resources that God created, God says to man, you're going to create, you're going to nurture, you're going to steward, you're going to reign, you're going to rule. And immediately following that, Adam starts exercising dominion. And you know what the first thing he does is? He names the animals. He's exercising his dominion as he creates names for these animals. He's creating, using his creativity, and, and he, that's what he's doing. He's naming these things. All right, so let me pause for a second in case I'm losing some of you. I want you to think about culture as everything's humans make. Humans come into the world and they make stuff. They discover that they can make things. They can pass things on. If these are old enough, we call them artifacts. That's what humans do. They create food. They create language. They invent sports. They create art. They create technology. And the question for us to wrestle through as followers of Jesus or as people who are trying to have a Christian, a biblical worldview is are those aspects of creation, the fact that we create art, create technology, the fact that we do these things, are those incidental, they're just kind of side effects of the fact that we're image bearers, or are all of those things that we do fundamental to who we are as image bearers? And the truth is the latter. That this, it is fundamental to who we are that we create culture as that broad term. And that creating of culture is the impact of us being made in the image of God. It's the fundamental assignment that we get from the Lord to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the world. And that word subdue gets our back up, but you, and, and guess subdue does mean dominate, but you have to think about this. In a pre-technological world, what kind of domination could you actually do? Throw grapes at something until it ate them? It's a different world than we have today. Subdue in a pre-tech world isn't about ruining the world. It's about caring and stewarding and ruling over the world responsibly. That mankind was always meant to move out of the garden to fill the world, discover its potential, and care for it. And at its best, this is culture, caring for the world and uncovering its potential. But of course, we know that it also can turn a hard right turn, as we see in Genesis 3. Are you following me so far? Thank you. 
The point is this, we're meant to make something of the world by God's design. Think about bread. Bread is different in every culture in the world. Think about grapes. Some cultures make jelly. Some cultures make jam. Some cultures make juice. Some cultures make wine. Some cultures make vinegar. That mankind, with his cultural creation ability as an image bearer, takes these resources that God gives and he makes it differently because it's part of who we are as image bearers. This is our divine ability to nurture, to create, to harness, to rule. But Genesis 3, something went south. We've talked about this every single week. We embrace open rebellion against God in what we call the fall of mankind, that Adam essentially handed over the kingly rule to Satan. That's why Satan is called the prince of this age. That's why when John talks about the world, the, the word world in any John writing, so John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, the word world always refers to the kingdom of Satan in John's framework. So we turn over the keys to the kingdom, metaphorically, to Satan. And what we see under that now, instead of reigning as little kings under the king of kings, now we're reigning as dominion makers under a fallen king, under this satanic adversary of God. And so instead of using our God-given image-bearing cultural mandate to create, to harness that which is good, human beings do the opposite. A great example of this is the Tower of Babel when God says, go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. And mankind says, instead of that, how about we don't scatter and we just stay here and we build a tower that's taller than heaven and we kick you out. And that's what the Tower of Babel is all about. Now we could survey human history from the time of the Tower of Babel all the way until the present age, and we could make a ridiculous list of all of the horrible things that human beings have created with this divine dominion cultural mandate and ability that God has given us. We could do that. But what I really want to focus on is how this looks to be made manifest, how this is made manifest in the Israelite, in the Jewish, in the Hebrew world. You see, for hundreds of years, the Israelites had no human king because God was their king. When he rescued them out of Egypt, he gave them their, this, this law, which is basically like their constitution. He says, I'm going to be your king. You're going to be my subjects. This is what you're going to look like. This is what I'm going to do for you. This is what you're going to do for me. And that's the framework they had for hundreds of years until they decided one day that they wanted a king like every other nation because they felt like they didn't fit in. And so they demanded a king. And the first king that they had was really tall. His name was Saul. And everybody liked him because he was a, a head and shoulders taller than everybody else around, and he was handsome, and all those kinds of things. But guess what? He was a mess. He was a mess because humans lack the capacity to reign as God intended because we're corrupted by sin. That means some are good, some are bad, some are worse, some are better. But no human since that day when Adam and Eve fell has been able to reign and rule and create the way that God actually designed. After Saul, there's a guy named King David who becomes like the archetype of a good king, even though he also had an affair and killed his best friend and lots of other stuff. 
right? He's still the best of the best in terms of these kings. After David is Solomon, who is tolerable, but he's also a mess. And after Solomon dies, it all goes haywire. And the northern kingdom separates from the southern kingdom, and now the kingdom is split. And in the next batch of years, there's 39 kings that reign in the north and in the south. And of the 39, only eight are tolerable. And even the eight that are tolerable are nowhere near perfect. That's why when you read through the Psalms and the prophetic literature, you see time and time and time again that the author is pining for and looking forward to a king who's going to come, who's going to reign as God intended, a king who's actually going to reign with the dominion mandate, the cultural mandate, who's going to be a just king, a righteous king, a compassionate king. And one of those Psalms is Psalm 72, and we want to look at that now. Psalm 72 is written by Solomon, David's son. It's a prayer that Solomon has that's basically for himself. It's with kind of this grandiose language Solomon is praying for himself, but maybe Solomon doesn't realize that he's also prophetically looking forward to another king, the real king, the true king who would come and who would succeed where every other human being had failed. So this is what we see in Psalm 72. He says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he, he's talking about himself in the third person, may he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Solomon prays that God would give him the ability to lead these people in accordance with the Davidic covenant, with the covenant, the promise that God had made, that that Solomon prays that he would be a good king, that he would rule God's people well, that he would protect the poor and the needy, that he would bring blessing to all of the nation, and because of that, all of the nations of the earth. This is the embodiment of the Abrahamic covenant given in Genesis chapter 12, 15, 17, and continued on throughout the scriptures. You see, the king was supposed to further the well-being of the, of the people of God by embodying the image of God. The same way that the Babylonian king embodied Marduk, the king of Israel was supposed to embody Yahweh, his character, his justice, his compassion. That meant that if he was going to do that, if he was going to be reigning as a steward on Yahweh's throne in Jerusalem, he had to embody the character of God, furthering the well-being of God. He had to rule in a way in which justice would reign, compassion would be tangible, that people would be blessed. This is in stark contrast to the way that the nations of the world rule, isn't it? That's why Jesus says when he's talking in the Gospels, he says, you know how the Gentiles lead. That's not how you're supposed to lead. You're not supposed to lead like the way Rome leads. You're not supposed to lead the way Nebuchadnezzar led. You're not supposed to lead with with this just fear and this iron fist, and when someone gets in your way, you kill them. That's not what you're supposed to do. That's not true leadership. And Psalm 72 is implying that under a good leader, people thrive. And under godliness, a nation is blessed. 
But under, under godlessness, the nation suffers. Biblically, the scriptures give an impression that when a king reigns well, the land flourishes, and it looks more and more like the Garden of Eden. And God's design for Israel was that they would function in this way, and they would be like a a lighthouse to the nations around them, that the nations would pass through on merchant routes, and they would encounter this, this nation that was different from all the others, and they would want to know what's the deal with your king and what's the deal with your God, and they would be a different people. Continuing in Psalm 72, May they fear while the sun endures, And as long as the moon throughout all generations, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all the nations serve him. Solomon is praying that he would be a good king and the people would want a good king to reign for a very long time. And that's what he's praying for in this psalm. He says, while the sun endures and until the moon is gone, right? That's how long a good, a good king could, should reign. Nobody wants to live under an evil king. They want to live under a good king because a good king's presence is like rain watering the earth. It's soothing to the land. A king like that deserves to reign and lead not just over a small area, you know, like all those Hallmark movies that you watch where there's like, He's like, oh, she's a princess. In what country? The country of Malachtenstein, right? And they're really nice there. No, if you're a good king, you deserve to reign in ex- over an extended area. And that's the picture we have here from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. That's how far this king should reign so that his peace can abound, his justice can spread, his mercy and righteousness can spread over the earth as the waters over the sea. He says, even into Sheba and Seba and Tarshish, even into, that's the Arabian Peninsula, into Africa. In other words, what he's saying is even the people of Ishmael, as opposed to the people of Isaac, even the people of Ishmael would come and worship this king. That's what Solomon prays. Now, little does Solomon know that he's prophetically looking forward to the one true king who would come and reign from the river to the ends of the earth, King Jesus. But he prays that for himself, and that is his hope that he would fulfill it. But Solomon will fail because with the corrupt spirit, because of the fall, he can't do it, no matter how hard he might want to try. He continues, for he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. A compassionate leader, embodying the love of God without using it as a manipulative political tool, who wants to lift up the poor not so they vote for him, but because he has true compassion over them a king like a shepherd. In a wicked culture, the oppressed and needy are exploited 
like the untouchables in India, but here they thrive under this king. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains, may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Who wouldn't want to live long under that kind of a king? Of course, we know that this psalm looks forward to Jesus. And so Jesus does come. Jesus comes in the incarnation, the 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 fully God and fully man walking on this earth. Jesus comes and Jesus alone is uniquely able to fill the the dominion mandate. He comes as not just a little king like us. He comes as the king and a little king. He comes as the king of kings while also being a king of this earth. He's fully God and fully man. Fully God, that means that he has the wisdom, the divine right, the power, and the authority to rule and to reign. That he could have called down a legion of angels and they would have obeyed him in any capacity. But instead, he doesn't consider his divine right as something to leverage, but he empties himself by also taking on the form of sinful flesh, being fully man as well. He will succeed where all the other little kings, all the other people had failed before him, and all other little kings, all other people would be destined to fail. See, the psalmist pleads for justice and mercy and compassion, but Jesus would be that kind of king. He would be a king, a good king, full of righteousness, full of justice, full of compassion, full of care, full of all that would make him worthy to be the king. But instead of honoring him as king, humanity would execute him. Because God had been storing up wrath since Adam. Because wrath is the proper response to all of the evil that mankind has been creating with their cultural mandate. With their mandate to rule, mankind has just created wretchedness. And then in Jesus' death, in King Jesus' death, he would, instead of pouring out justice on those who deserve it, who have been creating evil since Adam and Eve, instead he would take that bucket of wrath that God had stored and he would drink the goblet of wrath so that we wouldn't have to. And in his death, Paul argues in Romans chapter 6, he defeats the dominion of sin by paying off its debt. And then Paul continues in Romans 6 to say, with his resurrection, he defeats the dominion of death. That death no longer has any hold over him and sin no longer has any hold under us. And that's why Paul continues in Romans 6 to say, therefore, let sin not reign in your mortal body because it no longer has dominion over you. And the result of this is Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Therefore, God has exalted him and 
bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue from the river to the ends of the earth will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord all to the glory of God the Father. That the Father, because of what the Son has done in obedience, the Father has given Jesus dominion over all as the Son of Man, the one who would have dominion. And then he sends us the Spirit of the King. He sends us his Holy Spirit so that we can actually follow him as newly created image bearers were previously we had no capacity to do so. I want you to picture this. And we're winding down here. Only 20 more minutes. Picture this. Close your eyes if you want to. A conquering king draws near to the walls of an ancient city. And as his army lines up for this display of force, an ambassador breaks from the ranks and trots toward the city gates in order to proclaim the king's terms. And they're quite simple, as the representative of the king explains. This king who comes knocking at the gates of this soon-to-fall nation is the true king, he claims, and he has come to declare his authority over all the people. Their response is threefold. One, they must bend the knee in obedience and submission. Two, they must drop their own banners and colors, and they must pick up the colors of this new king, identifying with him. Three, they must then speed forth as his messengers, bringing this message of the new king to the neighboring towns and the future cities, heralding that this king is on his way. Now, this imagery is quite familiar to us because, let's be honest, it's found throughout our literature and our stories, throughout our movies. It's found in our history. But the truth is that we bristle at the idea. We bristle at the idea. Do you want to know why we bristle at the idea? Because most of the books and stories and movies we've seen, in most of those stories, we are on the side of the underdog as the evil empire comes to oppress innocent people, right? So we align with the rebel alliance in Star Wars and the evil empire that's trying to crush our little city over here. We read of an army approaching the gates of a city, and immediately we feel our hearts knit together with those terrified people behind the city walls who are just trying to defend their livelihood. We imagine an epic battle where they are vastly outnumbered and outmatched, but those townsfolk hold the enemy at bay while they beat their plowshares into swords. Isn't that what we picture? But what if the conquering king isn't evil? What if this isn't a conquering king bent on evil expansion? What if he's a deliverer and he's liberating the land city by city from the clutches of an evil warlord? What if he is shattering chains and removing taskmasters and bringing light and life to a world that is veiled in shadow? And what if the picture is not of the Sith Empire and the Rebel Alliance, but is one of Aragorn leading the armies of Gondor against the gates of Moria in the Lord of the Rings. In this case, the arrival and proclamation of a new king is not a harbinger, 
but it's a joyous occasion. And any doubts that surround our understanding of this king's leadership stem not from his character flaws, but from our own conditioning at being accustomed to nothing but corrupt leadership. Obedience to the evil empire is oppressive, but obedience to this new king is liberating because he has our best interests at heart. And identifying with his banner and flag through baptism is not abandonment of your old life, but it is joyfully being adopted into a new life. And any sane person would be eager to go and proclaim that king to any other human who is trapped in darkness and shadow. See, God intended us to reign as kings under Yahweh as our creator, but we failed. But then Jesus came as the king, fully God, and as a human king, fully man, and he succeeded where we failed. And now God has given him dominion over all things, including sin, including death, and including the whole world. But right now we live in this tension of already not yet because he is king over everything, but in his patience and mercy, he has not yet enacted his reign with an iron fist. Our response to this is to willingly and joyfully bend the knee because he isn't a wicked king. He's a liberating king. He rescues from the domain of darkness. He breaks the chains of the ancient dragon. And under his reign, there is peace and joy and justice and compassion and love and so much more. And when this king commands you to follow him, it isn't an ultimatum, but an invitation. And to refuse to submit to his reign isn't to enforce your own right to make decisions, but to embrace continuing to live under the enemy's defeated kingdom. When this good king tells you to abandon your sin that you've been struggling with, it isn't because he wants to deny you a fun, but because he wants, to you to, he wants you to enter into times of refreshing. He wants you to willingly submit and surrender to this king, and he stands at the door and knocks. Why do we resist his reign? Because we're so conditioned to living under the evil empire, the truth is we don't trust him either. But trusting him is what we must do because he's a good king and long may he reign. Father God, we just thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the beauty of the gospel, all that you have done, the miraculous work that you would consider us, that you would rescue us, that you would pursue us, that you would go to those great lengths to redeem paupers and peons, people who have nothing special about them, yet you count us as beloved, and you make us your own, and you adopt us into your family, and you cannot wait to spend eternity with us. Come soon, King Jesus. Come soon.